The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 22, verse 1 through 5. Bill just gave you the page number, but I'm guessing it's the last page in the Bible. It's just a thought. If it's not, it's a really giant edition of the giant print edition of the Bible. But we're nearing the end. So, and what a joy I have today to preach on aspects of our heavenly inheritance. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians that their, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know the riches of their glorious inheritance in the saints. That you would know, just putting it simply, that you would know together with all the saints how rich you're going to be in heaven. And there could be, I, I think, almost no better passage of Scripture than Revelation 22, 1-5 through 5, to give you a sense of, of a catalog, a listing of some of the aspects of your heavenly inheritance. Uh, recently, a friend of mine got me into listening to uh, The Count of Monte Cristo on tape, a book on tape. I downloaded it from Audible. It took up all of the remaining memory in my phone. It's 52 hours long. I did not realize how much the movie left out. Um, but probably one of my favorite parts is the description of the treasure. The movie just, the movies just skim over it quickly, but it's marvelous. And as Edmond Dantes gets into this grotto and he's got this box of this, tr- this treasure that has been there since 1490, he opens it up. It's in three categories. Let me read how Alexander Dumas describes it. Three compartments divided the coffer. In the first, blazed piles of golden coin. In the second were ranged bars of unpolished gold, which possessed nothing attractive save their value. In the third, Edmund grasped handfuls of diamonds, pearls, and rubies, which, as they fell on one another, sounded like hail against glass. After having touched, felt, examined these treasures, Edmund rushed through the caverns like a man seized with frenzy. He leaped on a rock from whence he could behold the sea. He was alone, alone with these countless, these unheard of treasures. Was he awake or was it but a dream? He raced around screaming like a madman at his lavish fortune. Then he fell on his knees and clasping his hands convulsively uttered a prayer intelligible to God alone. He soon became calmer and more happy. For only now did he begin to realize his felicity. He then set himself to work to count his fortune. There were a thousand ingots of gold, each weighing from two to three pounds. Then he piled up 25,000 crowns, golden coins, each worth about 80 francs. He saw that the complement was not half empty. Then he measured ten double handfuls of pearls, diamonds, and other gems, many of which mounted by the most famous workmen, were valuable beyond calculation. Now, Edmond Dantes had to take in his treasure a little at a time. It was just way too much 
for him to understand just how wealthy he had become. And so he's lifting things up out of the box and looking at each one. And as I come to Revelation 22, 1 through 5, that's the sense I have. They're just these, these quick statements that are made, one after the other. Some of them very brief. But they're of almost indescribable worth and value. Like, just take that, that one phrase, and we'll get to it and try to spend some good time on it. They will see his face. Just a quick phrase. Infinite in worth and value. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go through Revelation 22, 1 through 5, and we're going to just lift up one at a time each of these treasures, and we're going to ponder them. And, and I pray that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, O oh Christians, brothers and sisters, that you would realize how rich you will be in heaven in your inheritance with the saints. And if you're not yet a Christian, my desire is that you would be just jealous to be that rich, and you'd cross over from death to life this very morning as I proclaim the simple truth of the gospel, which I will do. All you have to do is believe the gospel and you'll be that wealthy as well. Now, as we come to this section in Revelation, we're just really continuing the Apostle John's description of the New Jerusalem. And it began back in Revelation 21. So you can go back and look at uh, beginning at verse 9. One of the seven angels carried John away in the spirit and showed him the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 11, Revelation 21, 11. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. John then goes on to describe the glorious architecture of the new Jerusalem. It's great high wall with its 12 gates, each one of those gates named for one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and each one had an angel standing at the gates. Not to guard it, not at all, because there are no threats, but just to welcome all, all that would pass in and out of the gates. And he mentions and sees a vision of the 12-fold foundation of the city wall, each with a name of one of the apostles of the Lamb, and the the gates of pearl, each gate made of a single pearl, and uh, the streets of the city being made of something just unknown to us, but something like transparent gold. And the foundations of the city wall decorated with all manner of precious gems, giving off every, every uh, color of the spectrum, the marvelous beauty, the radiance of these jewels. And this new Jerusalem, as we saw, is massive in size, almost incalculably huge. As we noted, at a distance from Orlando to Abilene, Texas, and all the way up to the border of Canada, a massive city, and as high as it is long and broad. It's just incalculable. And the city is continually just radiant with the glory of God. It seems to be a translucent place, just glowing with the glory of God. And the city gates stand open continually and the wealth of the nations come pouring in continually, streaming in to beautify the city, making it even more glorious. John mentions the kings of the nations will bring their glory into it. So this city will be the focus of the new heavens and the new earth. Now in some mysterious sense, this new Jerusalem represents us, represents the people of God, the bride of Christ. But it cannot be only a symbolic representation of the multifaceted, diverse beauty of the church of Jesus Christ. Because we are going to need a place to live forever. We're going to have resurrection bodies made like Christ's resurrection body. We're going to be conformed, we're going to be transformed out of our lowly bodies to be made like his glorious body. 
Philippians 3.20. And so you remember how Jesus in the upper room after his resurrection in Luke 24 was trying to prove to his apostles that they were not seeing a ghost. And he said, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then he showed them his hands and his feet. So we're going to have resurrection bodies. And so we're going to need a place to walk and a place to gather and a place to dwell and a place to eat and drink. And that place will be the New Jerusalem. And at the end of Revelation 21, we saw that it's perfectly pure. It's a pure place. It's free from all threats, free from all enemies, free from all wickedness. Look at verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so that brings us right up into the context, Revelation 22. And the first five verses of Revelation 22 completes, line by line, John's description of the New Jerusalem. And I can do nothing better than like Edmund Dante's, just take up treasure after treasure and just look at them briefly. We're going to look at them briefly this morning, but you all in Christ are going to live them eternally. And so my desire is that your hearts will just be so filled with joy, so filled with peace and happiness and hope based on the word of God and based on the ministry of the Spirit. So let's start with the river of the water of life. Look at verse 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. So he begins by mentioning uh, his angelic guide. John is guided by an angel, as we saw in Revelation 21.9, same angel. But really it's the Holy Spirit giving him a vision that he would have no other way. The New Jerusalem did not exist when John wrote. Still does not, it's not finished. I don't know what to say about it. It's just only by vision and by scripture can we get an idea of what it's like. John could never have come up with this. He could never have written this out of his imagination. He was no literary genius coming up with with visions from his own fervid imagination. That's not what's happening here. The angel was on mission from God to show him a vision of the future. And what does he see? He sees a river of the water of life. It's a powerful image, a sparkling, bubbling, rushing, gushing river of water. It's endlessly flowing. It's ready to refresh the inhabitants of the new heaven and new earth, of the new Jerusalem forever. And it's, and it's flowing clear as crystal. Brilliant, radiant, shining with the glory of God like everything else in the city. I remember my dad was raised in Miami, Florida. And I remember when I was a kid, a long time ago, uh, we took a trip down the Florida Keys, down to Key West. And I'll never forget that drive. It's just an amazing road, unlike any I've ever been in. It's kind of like a flat highway just above the surface of the water. See the, uh, I guess, the Atlantic Ocean on one side and the Gulf on the other, or maybe it's all Atlantic. I don't know how they define it, but it's just the ocean that's sparkling and beautiful. And we pulled off in this one little cove and we just had a picnic. I've never seen water so clear in all my life. You could see the fish. I mean, I don't know how many feet deep it was, but it was just like glass right straight through. It's just perfectly clear, beautiful water. I'll never forget that. It's a foretaste. And so this river, the water of life, is like this it's, there's no impurities, there's no silt, there's no mud. It's just perfectly clear water, sparkling. And it's flowing down the middle of the great street of the city. The city is depicted as made, as we've already seen, of transparent gold in Revelation 21, 21. And it seems that the city plan, the whole, whole city is centered around this great street and, and this river. And so they, they, they go together. 
Now this image is very similar to one seen by the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 40 through 48, Ezekiel has a mysterious vision of a temple. And in Ezekiel 47, uh, in those nine chapters that describe all of that, he describes a river flowing from that mystical spiritual temple that he has a vision of. That's what it says in Ezekiel 47. The man, angel, brought me back to the entrance of the temple and I saw water coming from out of, uh, under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. And as the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. And then he measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. And he measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. And then he measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in a river that no one could cross. It's just getting deeper and wider as it goes on. And in Ezekiel's image, the river produces vast, diverse life and fruitfulness. Then he led me back to the bank of the river, Ezekiel 47, 6 through 9. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. And when it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. And there will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Hallelujah. And then, Ezekiel 47, 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. And their leaves will not wither, nor will will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them, and their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. I mean, there's little doubt in my mind that that same Holy Spirit that inspired the prophet Ezekiel to write those words was inspiring the Apostle John to write these. And he's giving us a description of the same future heavenly blessedness. We're going to have a new Jerusalem. This idea of the river of the water of life also connects with so many images in Psalms of thirsty souls coming to God. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul yearns for you. When may I go with God, the living God? Psalm 42, 1, and it says, Psalm 46, 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. So there's a river where God will dwell, and it makes everyone glad. It also reminds me of the original Garden of Eden. You remember how there was this beautiful Garden of Eden. And from the midst of that garden flowed a river. And it separated out into four headwaters. And those headwaters are listed there in Genesis chapter 2. And to me that always gave me this sense that Adam and Eve were not meant to stay in that garden. But they were meant to move out and to fill the earth and subdue it and multiply and, and, and just explore it. You know, remember how in, in Genesis 2 it talks about, about aromatic resin and onyx and gold being out there. And there's just a world to be explored. So I get the sense that the river of the water of life flows and it leads out of the city, the new Jerusalem, out into the new earth to explore, to make it uh, everything that God wants it to be and to discover what God has done. It also reminds me of the statement that Jesus made to the Samaritan woman. You remember how uh, she was trying to understand him and his message 
how he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's speaking to you right now, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Uh, She did not know who he was and was not all that impressed with what she saw. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, also his flocks and herds and his sons? Are you greater than Jacob? Infinitely greater than Jacob. But I'll tell you how I'm greater than Jacob. Everyone who drinks of Jacob's water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, it will become within him streams of water, living water, welling up to eternal life. So this is just the consummation of all of these images. A source of endless spiritual refreshment. Through our relationship with God and of Christ... It also teaches that the source of our eternal life will forever be God and Christ. There is no independent eternal life. We will depend on the river of the water of life flowing from the throne forever. We're not going to cut the tie with God and with the throne up there. Our eternal life is dependent on Him. And He is eternally willing for us to keep living. It's a continual choice on His part that we should continue to live in Him. That's an image. So we're forever dependent on him. And notice the source of the water is the throne of God. He is a king. He's a mighty king. And he's seated on a throne. And life just flows from his kingly rule. The water created right from the sovereign power of the king of the universe. And he's just creating it and creating it and creating it and creating it. Like the theologians say that God created the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ex nihilo. That's Latin for out of nothing. He just made the universe out of nothing by the word of his power. So he's making this water. He's just making this water. Just making and making and making this water forever. And it represents God as the source of all life, all happiness, all joy and refreshment forever. Also, it shows the nature of God's rulership, his kingship. His rulership benefits those who he rules. Human rulers use their authority to dominate people, to to fleece the flock, to strip them and shred them of, of life and possessions. So many rulers all over the world use their positions to dominate and oppress. But not God. He uses his rulership to give life and to bless everyone that he rules. And notice that we, surrounding the throne, we'll talk more about that in a moment, we're not running from the throne now. Not at all. We're not running as rebels. We're running to the throne to be refreshed and to delight. This also reminds me of another flow from the throne of God depicted in another place. In Daniel chapter 7, remember that the prophet Daniel had a vision of four beasts coming up out of the turbulent waters representing mighty, godless, satanic empires coming one after the other. The wicked, satanic rulership of the world. But in the middle of that chapter, we have the throne of the Ancient of Days, Almighty God, right in the middle of that, ruling over everything. Ruling to judge and bring wrath on these demonic, wicked empires. And Daniel 7, 9 and 10, it says that Almighty God, the Ancient of Days, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. And his throne was flaming with fire. And its wheels were all ablaze. Daniel 7.10. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. From the same throne comes a river of fire and a river of the water of life. And so that's hell and heaven. And it comes from the sovereign power of Almighty God. 
Both eternal life and eternal death flow from that throne. Second, we have the tree of life. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So, to some degree, in our hearts, our minds, we must feel that we've returned to the Garden of Eden. Only this is perfected. It's infinitely better now. We're not on probation. We're not being tested. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see the the tragic river of wickedness that flowed from that, that sinful decision on Adam's part. A flood of miseries, of sin and sickness and sorrow. Tears and death. And after Adam and Eve sinned, they were evicted from the Garden of Eden. And a sentinel cherubim was placed with a flaming sword flashing back and forth. God said, God the judge says, lest they reach out their hands and take and eat from the tree of life and live forever. That sentinel guardian angel was put with a flaming sword. But Jesus Christ came and paid the death penalty. And remove that, that sword, that angel. And now we have the right to enter through the gates of the city and eat from the tree of life forever. Jesus won us that right. He paid for it with his blood. And notice the position of the tree. I can't figure this out. One tree on both sides of a mighty river. It's a big tree. <laughs> it's an awesome picture. In Ezekiel, it's just a, a grove of trees on each side. But, but in John's image, it's just the tree of life. And the tree of life and the river of the water of life just show different aspects of the same thing. Life comes from God. God, life inten- God intends for us to live. And he wants us to, he wants us to drink and eat forever and live forever. And so we've got this amazing fruit tree. And like... The, the godly man of Psalm 1. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season whose leaf never withers. Whatever he does prospers. You have that same kind of image. So there's a constant flow of water and then just continual fruitfulness. It's, it's, uh, it's tree is bearing fruit every month. It's an interesting image and I didn't know what to do with it so I'm going to do nothing with it. I have too much other things to talk about. But there it is. One commentator saw it as kind of a grove of trees. Another is like one of those kind of tree, trees where you see the root system. Like there's some of those trees where you can see the gnarly roots and they're spreading everywhere. Or, or maybe it's just that the river coming from the throne is narrow and gets broader and broader. And so it's on each side. I don't know what to make of it. Others just make no effort to make any sense of it physically because they're not really trying to do that with Revelation. They're not thinking physical, 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 so they're just saying spiritual or symbolic all the time. But I'm thinking physical, and I'm trying to think how it happens, and I can't wait to see it, however it is. But I know this, that the tree of life derives its life from the throne of God, from the river of the water of life flowing. And notice it says that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. This is somewhat mysterious as well. We were already told back at the beginning of Revelation 21, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Death is done. So what do we need uh, an ongoing, continual healing of the nations for? You might think it's like saying the hospitals in New Jerusalem will be top-notch. Or even worse, the funeral homes will be the best funeral homes you've ever seen. Like, what? (laughs) 
Why do we need top-notch hospitals and excellent funeral homes in the New Jerusalem? Can I just stop and tell you you won't? And that's not what's going on here. Rather, that I think, again, just like our life is dependent on God, our vitality, our healthfulness, our power in our resurrection body are dependent on God too. And we will derive endless strength and potency from eating from this tree of life. And also, perhaps, this is why no pain is ever needed. I don't imagine that we, you know, will have any kind of injuries to us or we'll stub our toe or smash our heads on anything in the New Jerusalem. But maybe if you ever were that clumsy, although you'd say, in my resurrection body, Pastor, I'm going to be perfectly graceful. And there'll be nothing that will ever happen that would cause an injury. But even if you did, you could imagine instantaneous healing of the resurrection body. It's a different way to look at the leaves of the tree or for the healing of the nation. There's no need for pain. There's no need for your resurrection brain to even find out about it. Instant fine. Just like Malchus's ear that Peter cut off with his sword. New ear. And so there's just a continual healthfulness from eating the tree. And notice that it also says, no more curse. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. The curse came from eating of the forbidden fruit. The main curse, of course, is death. And that's gone. That curse is removed. We will not die. And beyond that, we know that Adam's labor was cursed. The ground was cursed because of him. And it was going to produce thorns and thistles. And by the sweat of his brow, he was going to be working for his food. So the earth will not be cursed. And Adam and his progeny will not be cursed with death. And I actually want to go beyond that and say our labor won't be cursed either. I really believe we're going to work. We're going to work on projects forever and ever. And we'll be satisfied with the progress that we're making in. And they'll be deeply, richly satisfying these projects to us. I don't know if they'll be agricultural or, or technological or what they will be. But you will use your amazing resurrection brain and your amazing resurrection body to do amazing things. And there'll be no curse on your labor. When the Jews entered the promised land, they were promised blessings of God. Deuteronomy 28, it says, you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Oh, what a sweet meditation that is when you think about the new Jerusalem and the new earth. You'll be blessed in the city and you'll be blessed out in the country. You'll have a marvelous city life and a marvelous country life. And everything that you do will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. How marvelous is that? Next, it speaks of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. We've already seen that in verse 1. The throne of God is the place where He rules, where He reigns over the universe, the new heaven and new earth. In the present universe, the throne of God is situated in the words of Scripture as infinitely high and lifted up above us. Isaiah says, the Almighty says, I live in a high and holy place. Isaiah 66, 1, this is what the Lord said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? Or Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. So you get this uh, sense of God's throne being high and lifted up and really to some degree inaccessible to us. 
But there in that new Jerusalem, when, when the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, the throne of God will be right there in the midst of the people, right there in the midst of the city. No gap, no separation, though God is still infinitely holy. He's creator, we're creature, but still the throne will be right there. And it's what God has always wanted. He wanted to be in the midst and be with his people. And he would be their God and they would be his people. That would be fulfilled. And so the throne of God will be right there. And our access to the throne will be perfect. We'll be able to walk right up to the throne of grace and mercy because Christ has opened for us eternally a new and living way into the presence of the King. Notice also how this speaks to the deity of Christ. There is one throne and it's called the throne of God and of the Lamb. So again, this is more of that complex imagery of the deity of Christ. He and his Father share the throne. As Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And we have one throne as God. We already saw this back in Revelation 5, remember in verse 6, where John was weeping because no one had the right to take the scroll, remember? He said, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. Then I saw... Listen to this, Revelation 5, 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. It's the same image. Jesus, the lamb slain for the sins of the world, is standing in the center of the Father's throne. There's no doubt what that means. He is Almighty God. Now, we just have a series of rich blessings that will come to us as servants of God. Look at verse 3. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. So the throne of God, as I've said, is immediately accessible. But the primary role we will have, as recorded in this verse, there are other roles we have, is servants. Now, one of the translations now, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, says slaves, because that's really what we're talking about here. His slaves will serve him. His slaves will be there, ready to do his bidding. And the word serve is a priestly religious verb. So his slaves will do him priestly service. Now in other places, we're called his sons and daughters, and we will share inheritance with him. But the image here is one of slavery. God is a mighty king. He's worthy of our full obedience. In Adam, we became rebels fighting against the king of the universe. We joined Satan in rebellion. We've been redeemed from all that. We're delighted to take the king's yoke upon us. We're not fighting the yoke anymore. We're glad to have a mighty king to rule over us and tell us what to do. Now, the Greek word here for slaves is just the common word for slaves, sometimes translated bond slaves. Years ago, when I was preaching through Ephesians and also in Colossians, we came to the master-slave commands, remember, and I was talking about that. And... uh, Their Christian masters are commanded to treat their slaves with respect. Because they're under a master too. And someday they're going to have to give an account for how they treat their slaves. And they're accountable to their master for how they treat these other human beings. But there comes to any thoughtful Christian in the 21st century reading those commands, a question starts to press in on your mind. Why didn't Paul command Christian masters to emancipate their slaves, set them free? Why not? It makes sense. Why wouldn't he do it? Now, I'm not getting into that whole, whole sermon. I did a whole bunch on that. I preached a whole sermon on that question. So go back and look. It's in the Ephesians section. And I have a lot to answer because forces were unleashed, Christian forces in the world that eventually led 
to making chattel slavery illegal all over the world. But I, in both of those sermons, Ephesians and Colossians, I brought you guys to Revelation 22.3. One, one possible answer is that honestly, slavery is eternal. Forever, in some respects, we're going to be considered the slaves of God. Now, Peter and Paul and James in writing their epistles didn't mind that at all. They called themselves bond slaves of Christ. They were honored to do that. But I, I meditated more on this. Why, why would we f- do this? Keep in mind that Jesus took that same thing on himself. In Philippians chapter 2, Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of what? A slave being made in human likeness. You should meditate on that phrase. The very nature of a slave being made in human likeness. So it's like human equals slave in that, in that passage. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Jesus is forever seen to be a doulos, a servant. He's also every, forever seen as the son of God. And we have the same dual aspect. We are sons and daughters of the living God by adoption. And we're also slaves of the eternal God. And Jesus was every bit as much slave as he was God in Philippians 2. He wasn't faking it. He wasn't acting like a servant. This is who he really was. He served us by washing our dirty, nasty feet. He served us by taking our dirty, nasty sins on his holy self and dying in our place on the cross under the wrath of God. He served us. And amazingly, he's going to serve us in heaven still. It says in Luke 12, 37... I tell you the truth, he, the master, Jesus, will dress himself to serve and have them recline at the table and he will come and wait on them. Amazing. So I picture you feasting in the New Jerusalem and your cup is running down, I don't know, and somebody taps you on the shoulder and wants to refill your cup and it's Jesus, the king of glory, and he wants to fill your cup. So there's nothing menial or there's nothing demeaning about this kind of servant, service in heaven. So I thought about this. I said, well, what's the difference between being a slave and being an employee? Two key differences. Salary and freedom. Salary and freedom. Slaves don't get paid for their labor. And they're not free to walk away. So I thought, what about heaven? You're going to get paid for your labor in heaven? I tell you, you will not. You don't want to get paid. You're infinitely rich as a member of the family, the royal family. You don't need a salary. So you're not going to get paid. But I'm telling you this, back in the days of chattel slavery, they weren't singing out there for wages. That's not what they wanted. What do they want? Freedom. Freedom to what? Walk away. To get away from this wicked master and do whatever they saw fit. The more you meditate on that, the more you see that is not anything you will desire in heaven. Anyone that wanted to walk away from the master, they did walk away. Their whole lives, they walked away from the master, the king. And they rebelled against his kingly rule. And they received their condemnation. We are those that have embraced the yoke. We've embraced the kingly rule. And we delight in it forever. We don't want to go anywhere else. And we'll spend eternity serving him. And it's interesting how it says, as I said, it's a religious word. His slaves or servants will religiously serve him. It's like the work of the priest in the temple. That's the word that he uses here. Only then it was animal sacrificial system. It was manual labor. I mean, they had to keep the fires literally burning. They had to get bulls up on the altar. They had to kill them, pour out the blood. It was very physical. It was a hard day's work. All of that's been fulfilled. So what 
worship work will you do in heaven? I don't know, but you're going to enjoy it. You're going to work at worship forever and ever with this access to the throne. Now, maybe the greatest blessing of all, verse 4. They will see his face. How can I, in a few minutes, capture what the significance of those words really is? If you are redeemed, if you are a child of God, someday you will see God in the face. You'll see him. And this is the very thing that was forbidden of Moses on the mountain. Remember, he said, now show me your glory. Moses was having an intense time with God, a time of, of, of a love relationship with his creator, with God, the Father. He said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will to have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I will to have compassion. The very thing quoted in Romans 9. We don't deserve to have God show us his glory. It's just given by grace. But, he said, you cannot see my face and live. And the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock. And I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'm going to remove my hand and you will see my back. Hebrew is like my hindquarters. I like thinking of it more like my trailing glory. Like the last part of a comet going by. I'll let you see that. But my face must not be seen. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God at any time. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God is alone immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. Perhaps the reason that we cannot see the face of God is that in Adam we were all condemned criminals. And frequently a judgment by the king on a condemned criminal is you can't see my face. Remember when Absalom was banished and he wasn't brought back to see the face of the king, just came back to Israel, but he was, he was in anguish because his own father would not let him see his face. Do you remember Haman, the wicked, wicked Haman, who was condemned by King Xerxes, and as soon as the word went out to condemn him, they covered Haman's face. He wasn't allowed to see the face of the king anymore. So we are sinners condemned, and we have with indwelling sin corruption. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But we're not pure in heart. There is wickedness in us. There's corruption in us. So we are not fit to see his face. I think this is part of the reason why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We are not able to see God's glorious face. But someday we will. Someday we will see him in the face. As it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. That's what's going on right now. Exegesis, sermon, preaching, using your imagination. That's a poor reflection like in a kind of a dirty mirror. Then you shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And that vision will be absolutely transformative. We will become like him, for we will see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. And that vision, theologians, medieval theologians called it the beatific vision. The beatific vision. The, the vision of blessedness. There's, this is absolute perfect happiness. 
almost like you could imagine yourself like a, like a dust speck in a, in a stream of light just floating in a, an ocean of happiness to see the face of God. I look on, on God as the source of all beauty and all love and all goodness that there is in the universe. And you're going right to the absolute source and you're going to see him in the face. C.S. Lewis in his work, Till We Have Faces, said this. It was when I was happiest that I longed the most. (laughs) The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to get back to the mountain, the source, to find the place where all this beauty came from. My country, my homeland, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you think it all meant nothing? All that longing to get back, to get to the source? The longing for home, for indeed it now feels not like going, but like going back. And in verse 4 it says, his name will be on your forehead. His name will be on their foreheads. His name sums up the being of God. And you're going to glow with the glory of God. Just like Moses looked at the trailing hindquarters of God, the trailing aspects, and his face was shining radiantly, we're going to be looking right on into the face of God and our whole bodies are going to glow forever. His glory was fading as in the old covenant. God will stamp his name on your forehead saying, you are mine. I bought you with a price and you're my adopted sons and daughters. And so it's absolute ownership. Also on the forehead, there's a sense of your mind will be so completely transformed to love and honor the name of God, the ineffable name, the unpronounceable, the mysterious name of God. You remember in the book of Judges, uh, the angel of the Lord said, why do you ask me my name? It's beyond understanding. But somehow we are going to come closer to understanding the name of God in heaven. And, and he will own us and we will be immersed in him. And he will be our father and we will be his children. Verse 5, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. We already saw this in the last chapter. But it's said again. Night is a beautiful thing. I like the night. When there's some light, (laughs) if it's complete darkness, I don't like the night. But you can imagine all of the dangers gone. No wild animals, no predators stalking us, no criminals, no, no wicked people approaching by stealth to do us harm. Nighttime can be beautiful. If the, if the harvest moon is rising up over a field big and red and orange in October, it's beautiful. Nighttime can be beautiful if, if the stars are vivid and a cool, spring night and you're out in the mountains and you can see the, the Milky Way and all that, that, that starry host. Nighttime can be beautiful. If it's summer and you're out and, and you can see the moon shadows dancing everywhere and you hear the chirping of the crickets in a peaceful, energetic chorus. Nighttime can be beautiful if you're out sailing in a cove and it's placid waters and the moonlight shimmering on the water. I like nighttime in the winter when you see the trees all denuded of, of, their, of their leaves and, their, and you see all their, their stark kind of fingers and there's that cold, distant, silvery moon. I think that's beautiful. But 
however much beauty there is to nighttime now, it's going to be superseded by God's display of light coming from his own glory. He will do light beautifully and perfectly there, and you will not miss the night. And there's no light of the lamp there, so human technology like Thomas Edison, the incandescent light bulb, don't need it anymore. And we don't need Nikola Tesla's AC grid anymore. We don't need the, the, the energy footprint. God is just going to be pulsating the place with the light of his glory. And the final statement in verse 5, they will reign forever and ever. So you're going to reign. You're going to get a, a sub-kingdom to rule over. And God will be your king. Jesus will be your king of kings and lord of lords. And I do not believe that all the redeemed people will have equal positions of authority. I think there will be some more authoritative than others. You may have more of an egalitarian or I think one friend was talking a socialist vision of heaven. I don't know. Equal places. But I think that there are places that Jesus is right and that is left in his kingdom. And I think that those that suffered and served the best will get those places of honor. But However those rulerships will go, they will rule under Christ forever and ever. All right, quickly, application. If you're a non-Christian, you're on the outside of all this. You're on the outside looking in. And God has given you something called today. You don't know that you're going to have tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. You can't do anything about yesterday. But you have today. You have right now. And I've already given you the basic centerpiece of the gospel. God sent Jesus to die on the cross under his wrath for sinners like you and me. All you need to do to have a place in this marvelous new Jerusalem is believe in Jesus. Trust in him. Repent of your sins. Turn away from sin and believe in Christ. Say to him, oh Lord Jesus, I want you to be my savior. Your blood is sufficient for all of my sins. I trust in you. So come to Christ so you can join with all of the redeemed and celebrating this kind of life. Secondly, if I could just say, ask the Holy Spirit to work in you a sense of the glories of heaven. Take this text home and lift out the treasures yourself and look at them one at a time. And ask God to give you a foretaste of what it will be like to see his face. Worship him more. Sing to him psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Speak psalms to him. Thank him for all that he's done for you. Worship him longer. Make yourself happy in his presence every morning based on these truths. And seek to purify your life from all those things that you're going to be ashamed of on judgment day. Put sin to death by the spirit. Get yourself ready through holiness to enjoy as much of heaven as you possibly can, even here on earth. Realize that all of the beauty, all of the things that you see that you think are beautiful here in this world, they all come from the throne of God. And give him thanks for that beauty. And finally, share the gospel. This week, screw up your courage by the power of the Holy Spirit and say something to a lost person about Jesus. Say something to a co-worker. Say something to a neighbor. Say something to a total stranger. Talk to them about the glories of the place to which we're going and the even greater glories of the redeeming work of God that, that will get sinners like us there. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the joy that we have in meditating on heaven. Thank you for the beauty of the place to which we're going. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would strengthen each one of us to delight in that beauty and in that glory now by faith. Someday we're going to see it with our own eyes. Help us, O oh Lord, to live in open, obvious hope Help us, O oh Lord, to live out gospel joy. Help us to be bold in sharing the words of the gospel with those who are presently lost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.